Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Tonight, behind the mics, it is Laura Summers. Laura, how are you doing? Oh, look, I survived an NBN upgrade works today, so I'm doing pretty good. How did that go? Break it down. Look, I don't know. They said they were coming. I saw the internet speeds get slow, and then they got fast again, and that's really all I got. You kind of like to think it's going to be a smooth transaction, but it's more like three or four months of your life, I, I think. <laughs> oh, look, we didn't actually put in a work order or like request any like flaws or budget like issues on the line, rather. Um, they just scheduled something. So I'm guessing they saw that there were some issues in our area. Our NBN hub is literally in a pit in the ground, like attached to a bunch of saddled copper wires. So wouldn't be surprised if some of the rain has just like made something in that pit fall <laughs> or break or something. Some possums in there. Yeah, some possums, my cats, who knows? <laughs> I'll be with you also. I'm Warren. Davies. Tonight on the show, we are going to have a bit of a chat about the budget. There has been some stuff going on there for the digital economy over the past week or so. We're also going to have a chat to Dr. Kim Lay, part of an interesting research project at SBS on Australians and smartphones and what they're calling one of the largest social experiments in history. And we're also going to have a chat with Bill McLean at Monash University's Deep Neuron Volunteer Project. They're doing some amazing fun stuff with AI and high-performance computing, things such as forensics and recreating skulls and things such as amazing car challenges with AWS and things such as detecting outages and breaks in power grids in a way that companies haven't been able to do before. So that's pretty cool. I'm excited about that one. But before then, we do have a bit to talk about in terms of news and such. And there was a budget last night. I was reminded when I woke up this morning and everyone had a hot take on it on Instagram. I was like, yeah, that thing went on. I didn't watch it. Did you get a chance to watch it? I was going to say how impressed I was that you're like such a good digital citizen. You've like actually worked through what happened and wrote a bunch of notes for us because I basically saw a bunch of responses was like no <laughs> fire looked away i didn't even want to look at it oh i actively avoided it last night for sure where does that reaction come from was it specifically the budget the combination of the budget and the actual need for everyone to debate and the hot takes on instagram and twitter and i think it's just the whole thing i just have a mm. little bit of an allergy to the whole thing but also like of course if you have any specific agenda and that agenda does not align with the government you're probably going to be pretty disappointed yeah one of the funniest things i saw today which is probably not true but it could possibly be true, which is alarming, is that someone said Frydenberg had made it clear that amounts featured in the budget were to the closest $60 billion, which I thought, oh, it's pretty unusual. That's worse than my accounting, but that can't be true. I'll have to have a look into it. $60 billion seems high. Maybe $60 million, but even that's pretty high. <laughs> I'm sure there was an in-joke there for people actually watching the budget very closely, but mm. I did not get it. Things I did get were we kind of got a, a bit of a preview of what's going on for the digital economy about a week ago. Uh, last Thursday, they did announce the digital economy strategy and around $1.2 billion going into some major pieces of work. Largely speaking, about half of that is going to two big projects, a half a billion dollars into MyGov and the My Health Record. So they're hoping to jumpstart the digital economy with that, which seems, I can just see Scotty doing a bit of a toe flick there as he talks about jumpstarting something, like putting half a billion dollars into the pockets of consultancies is going to jumpstart anything. But if they're going to spend it, they should probably spend it on something like that. They are pretty terrible services. But the aim for the strategy overall, and let's give them the benefit of the doubt and see what happens over the coming six months 
and, and what starts to move. They want to invest in emerging technologies, building digital skills, encouraging business investment and enhancing government service delivery. So it is interesting. We've had 200 million or so, I think, into MyGov, 300 million or so into the My Health record. Can I just put out a personal request to anyone out there working on MyGov? If you are working on that, could you please, please fix the email messages that come out to you that say you have a new notification from your MyGov? Because so by these... default, all notifications come through? Or? Yeah, and they, they give you no information and it could be anything from you need to update your email to you owe some money or some terrible thing. Oh. But it always seems really ominous because there's no details in there. And I see it on Twitter a lot. Like people really dislike this kind of generic, please log in and check your email here mm. because it feels like something's gone wrong or, you know, your parents telling you off for not doing your homework. Maybe someone at the DTA said it's all about engagement. So they wanted uh, more click-throughs in the emails to spike engagement. So they told you nothing. Yeah, I would much prefer, especially if it's like not sensitive personal information, that they just put it in the email and save me a click, man. In the subject line even. Yeah, amazing. That would be great. Attempting to do that, there was the general tone that post-COVID and pre-election, this was about getting services right and looking after, you know, voters, like all of these services that are generally not amazing. We need to do something about those. So it's a bit of a infrastructure budget. But yeah, there is a lot, aside from what was announced last week in the precursor, a bit that also landed. This is exciting. Laura, this might float your boat. 54 million into a national AI center through Data61 at CSIRO. So that's interesting. Hopefully it's kind of sexy and in like a circle, kind of like those amazing kind of centers <laughs> that they get on the West Coast in America. That's Look, my only request. <laughs> you want it to be like the Apple headquarters or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah, just a small one. Just a little little baby version of that. Mm-hmm. I, look, I would be happy. There, we've seen some really good progress in like state-driven centers. And what I would really love to see is something that can like help those existing centers. In Victoria, we've got a couple. Queensland just announced one a couple weeks ago. Jeremy Howard, who's like one of the founders of FastAI, he came and spoke at their great unveiling. Mm. Be great to see ways to help like those existing centers collaborate. Yeah, can we have a national one if everyone's building their own one? Does it need to yeah. be like the railroads or something like well, that? But like also like AI is such a broad umbrella term, and there's so many skills under. It. So like a lot of mm. people struggle to find experts in specific areas of computer vision or specific areas of NLP. So I could see a lot of value in like improving those networks and helping people like find those mm. expertises and collaborate cross borders. Mm. That's just the naive optimist in me. <laughs> No, no. I mean, someone's got to think optimistically about this. Mm. Yeah, $111 million for consumer data right, $40 million to enhance location-based services. I thought this was unusual. And infrastructure by creating a 3D digital atlas of Australia. That kind of spun my head and I went, 3D? What What do they mean, 3D? What year is this budget? But anyway, they're having a go at it. DTA's overall funding dropped a bit because I didn't pick up on this last month, but they did get moved to the Department of Premier and Cabinet. I would love to have read some of those emails. $120 million went to Department of Veterans Affairs for their system. A variety of I guess, lesser spends into, I guess, just department services, infrastructure, tech, and so forth. The thing I was excited about sharing as part of this budget piece was games. The games industry is getting a tax break, I think, of 30%, which is great. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I'm sure everyone who's remotely interested in gaming in Australia knows how hard it is for the Australian devs to really compete on the global market or get visibility. So really getting behind them and giving them every boost they can get seems like such a great idea. I'm so excited about that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I had one I wanted to call out if that's cool. If anyone's heard of this Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, they actually were internet infamous a few weeks ago. We were talking about this in our catch up for having said something in a IT news article that was saying essentially you shouldn't need to use an encrypted messaging service. And in mm. fact, only criminals need to use encrypted messaging services. And they have received 51 
million, including an additional undisclosed amount for the ongoing integration of the National Criminal Intelligence System, which feels sus to me. I don't see why that needs to be undisclosed. And they also get a little bit of a hit from this additional 10 million that will be used to support the introduction of the Telecommunications Legislation Amendment International Production Orders Bill, which I think is related to that telecommunication bill where they can ask people to share what's in their back end, essentially, if they want to. I'm making kind of a logic leap here, but that's kind of my intuition of how that might be needing additional work. That does remind me, there was an interesting use of phrase, I'm creating a single front door for government services. And as soon as I said that, I thought, geez, there's been a lot of conversations going on about the back door there that we're not privy to and what's going on. I thought that choice of phrase, considering how, well, that's a long story. <laughs> like telling in the omission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, telling in the omission, exactly. I mean, this could be our last show. We are exclusively on Signal now. So exactly. let's go out with a bang. You know, right? Like you'll just see, like next week, you'll just hear some autonomous, hello, internet citizens. <laughs> Would you like to hear about some fun news on the internet. Uh, is there anything else that particularly caught your fancy in terms of our new stuff? I mean, we could talk about amazing Mars helicopters, but anything would be good relief compared to that budget. Oh, look, I really enjoyed this thing that Signal did. I mean, keeping on in line with like encrypted chat, like Signal ran a sort of jokey campaign on Facebook where they were basically pointing out all of the ways that you're targeted and micro-targeted using Facebook marketing tools. And they were quickly taken down and it was hilarious. They basically are just big blue boxes and they say, things like you got this ad because you're a newlywed Pilates instructor and you're cartoon crazy. This ad used your location to see that you're in La Jolla. You're into parenting blogs and thinking about LGBTQ adoption. So like all of this incredibly personal information and obviously that's quite creepy and really intense to see like that's how much information the business knows about you and is using that information to put the specific ad in front of your eyes at this moment. Mm. So yeah, I think this is actually a really interesting and impactful campaign and I hope they keep doing it through various guerrilla methodologies mm. to like keep pushing it in front of people's eyes. This actually makes me so sad because cookies are awful and cookies were wasted. We wasted a whole generation of great things that we could have done mm. on stupid advertising. Seriously. Mm. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. We are now joined by phone with Dr. Kim Lay, who's been doing an interesting piece of work with SBS. They've commissioned research on the impact of smartphone addiction and well-being in Australia. It's been one of the biggest studies of its kind. Kim, thanks so much for joining us tonight. And did you immediately start changing your own behaviours with smartphones? I'm curious to know. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. Just to clarify, the survey was actually conducted by Deakin University by Dr. Sharon Horwood. She has a really good resource on brain addictions called Black Screens. Mm-hmm. And you go to their website for more information on that. But in terms of my own personal use, I mean, I've always tried to tinker with my own smartphone use over the years. And I've been known to conduct my own experiments, such as a 30-day dumb phone challenge. So getting a $20 brick phone from Officeworks and trying that out, which was very, very frustrating, but very eye-opening at the same time. There's got to be an easy way to do that as well. Could you just turn mobile data off on your smartphone? There's got to be a quick way to do that. Yeah, but I don't know what kind of phone you have. I've got an Apple iPhone and you can set up various things on your phone, such as screen limits. And the way it's designed is it gives you the choice in the moment whether to follow your own predetermined settings or to ignore it. Mm. And of course, if you turn your mobile data off, 
certainly that will stop you from accessing the internet and stuff like that, but it's very easy to turn back on. So I guess what I'm trying to do is create some friction points for myself whenever I'm trying to change my habits so that it's less convenient because I just find that smartphones are just way too convenient to essentially search whatever you want, whatever answer you need at that time or whatever reward you need at that time. Yeah, that impulse just to flick it open and see what it's doing is very hard to short circuit rationally. I'm interested to know, so it was part of the SBS On Demand series, Are You Addicted to Technology? What are some of the endpoints, the things that you think are significant or revelatory for Australians that came from the survey? So there's two parts. The documentary is actually interactive and it's only available, ironically, on iPhone and Apple devices because it's quite interactive. So it's first of its kind because there's a virtual me in my virtual clinic and I'll ask you some survey questions. And so I actually compare you in real time your survey answers to the sample that was collected prior to the release of the documentary. So it'll ask you questions about how it affects your sleep and how you feel when you're not near your phone. And then I'll say whether your phone use is low, average or high. The other part of the film is that we discuss with the Gonski Institute the findings of their growing up digital survey which is looking at the responses or opinions of teachers from all over Australia. And I found that really eye-opening because it actually reported that teachers found that their students over the years are now showing less empathy, meaning when they're using their tech, they don't really care about the feelings of the other person as much as they saw in students in classrooms, say, 10 years ago. But I probably didn't care 20 years ago listening to my LPs or cassette deck, what other people thought as well. How do you make that comparison? Yeah, I was curious about what's different about screens and digital tech as opposed to any other kind of addictive behavior. Oh, okay. I guess that's a separate thing to addiction, I guess, that particular finding. So empathy is really about do you care about how someone else is feeling or caring about if they feel bad or if they feel sad. But in terms of addiction, funny you mentioned LPs. I've started a vinyl collection myself and that can be quite addictive. And I guess In the end, the difference between an LP and, say, Spotify is that the LP actually comes to an end and you have to take it out, you have to flip it around and listen to the reverse side and that takes some time and you've got to listen through it the whole way through, whereas Spotify, it allows you to access every single song out there and that extra interactivity part of it. And let's say you're really into music, I guess I'm saying is, is that you're more likely to become addicted to listening to music online than, say, addicted to collecting LPs and having a room full of LPs, which is also possible. Mm. And I know people who are like that as well but in terms of addiction what we're really saying is you lose your sense of control and you get negative consequences because of that loss of control Mm. i might just reel off some of the highlights that i thought were interesting so if an Mm. 18 year old continue to use their tech as they do today and i guess that's mostly smartphones in this context would equate to 11 years of their life on a device and half of us between the ages of 18 and 45 are anxious if we don't have our phones and a third of people 18 to 34 said their family complains that they spend too much time on their smartphones and so on and so forth so would you say it's fairly conclusive that we have an issue and what might it mean do you think i think certainly we've reached a tipping point where we're saying hey hang on a sec there's something not quite right about this behavior and we're questioning it which i think is a pretty normal human thing to do is we discover something new we change our behaviors but then we reflect on our behavior and i think everyone here is compared to say five years ago people were like oh yeah really is it really a problem but nowadays they're like him this tech addiction thing that you've been talking about for all these years i think it's actually a real thing please 
tell us more. Please tell us what you know about it. The funny thing that I've realised through the comments and the response to this film is that essentially we all have a different experience of how we use our time and the value we put on time and the amount of time that we could potentially sink into any particular activity and that's different to each person. So I think in terms of addiction to technology, it's actually harder to think of it as a concept when we talk about it in terms of time. Whereas if we talk about, say, alcohol addiction and standard drinks, I think we can all relate to that. Two standard drinks is pretty normal. Getting more than that is probably binging or drinking every day is unhealthy. So I think that's the next step is how do we quantify our time and how do we place a value on our time? The alternate argument is talking about the amount of money we spend on our technology or within our apps or microtransactions. And that's more a conversation specific to, say, video game addiction, which is something that I treat and assess for with my patients. But funnily enough, when we frame the idea of tech addiction in terms of money spent or money spent within apps, that's when people say, yes, this is a problem. We don't like to be manipulated. But when it comes to their time, they're not so concerned. Surely it's an opportunity cost conversation as well. People could be quite happily enjoying themselves sitting on Reddit all day, but they haven't turned up for work and they haven't called their dad or they haven't played that record that they bought last week because they've just lost track of time. So we're not very good at keeping track of those kinds of things like opportunity costs as well. You know, we've got a very abstract sense of time. I think what you're saying there is really interesting in that everyone's different. So one person could be doing Mm -hmm. three things on three different devices and having a conversation with someone and there's no adverse impact on their life. But for another person, that's almost impossible and they can't function because they're very directive with their attention and how they do things. Were there any thoughts that came out of that that felt clear about a universal theme about people's time? Or are you still grappling with that, quantifying it with money? I know what you're getting at. I guess the universal theme is that all the tech companies, they invest a lot of money and research and development in making these products and they need to get some kind of return of investment and the best way they can do that is to keep you using their products. That's the first universal takeaway. It's got to be really sticky. Yeah. The other, other, I guess, the other important thing to realise is that the prevalence or the rate of 100 people using, say, a certain piece of technology and how many of them are truly addicted or would meet the criteria for addiction is percentage-wise, relatively small. For example, the Australian Department of Health Statistics five years ago released some statistics around teenagers and their addictive behaviours with the internet and games. They found that approximately 4% of all teenagers have addictive problems. That's interfering with their sleep, the way they think and feel, and feeling like they need to be around their technology. So 4% may seem like not much, but when you think about it in terms of the population of teenagers around Australia, that 4% actually turns into 78,000 teenagers Australia-wide. So when you link that up with incidents of a depression and anxiety, it quickly snowballs into a community problem that we can't ignore. I was going to ask, you were mentioning before this observed decrease in empathy and also one of the other stats I noticed from that section of stats was that there was less activity. And obviously a common theme, even with games back in the 80s, was, oh, if you play violent games, you will become violent yourself. And I think... Fully, that sort of thinking has been mostly debunked, but I'm curious for your perspective as a psychiatrist about Mm. what do you think the correlation or the causation is between being more on your devices or falling into those addictive behaviors and then the perceived lack of empathy or decrease in activity. If you listen to and follow Dr. Sharon Hallward, who publishes quite a few of these articles, the main explanation is just the disconnect human to human. So like, let's say, for example, I see you in the office and I make a comment about the way you look or the way you talk or the way you act. You might actually get really offended by that and 
tell me either verbally or non-verbally through your body language how you received that comment. I would then interpret that as hurtful or I did something wrong and I would process that and then I'd think about it and think to myself, hey, hang on a sec, I'm sorry I said that or I'm sorry I, I did that because I could see that it hurt you. I think when you post something online and someone comments on that or you comment on someone else's post, you're quite disconnected to their reaction. And people talk about the loss of or the problem of ambiguity when someone posts something online. You can't really tell from the way they've written it, their intonation, other than going all caps and looking like you're shouting online. And all those little nuances, it's much more difficult online. And I think we don't have to talk about violence the video games. That's in a whole other kettle of fish. But mm -hmm. the funny thing with teenagers and their different screen use, the common question I get is what's worse? Social media, television, iPad, they're on their laptops at school all day. What's the worst screen time? Are they all created equal? And someone actually answered that question last year in a study published in the UK where they looked at 3,000 teenagers and they essentially found that teenage girls aged 15 who spend excessive amounts of time on social media fare far worse in terms of their depression, low life satisfaction, low self-esteem and deliberate self-harm, whereas boys who played video games excessively didn't score as high. Now, their reasoning for that from the data is that when you post something online or there's something posted about you online on social media, for some reason, for teenagers, it's perceived as a bit more permanent. Now, if someone bullies you or trolls you in a video game, for some reason, in video game culture, it's considered part of the culture that you're going to get trolled um, or trash talked in the game and then once the game's over you reset and you play another game and you forget about those comments what do you guys think about that yeah well certainly i'm aware of that kind of culture very competitive trash talking but it's sort of this expectation that this is how we play this mm. game but i know there are mm. also enclaves where people play games who have a moderator who's very specifically kicking out people who try and start yep. shit up so i'm wary of trying to make wild generalizations but to pick up on something you said a little earlier you started making me think about the lack of nuance and the way we even express emotion yep. online and everything is an emoji and it's extreme happiness or mm. raised hands or a sad face but that's not really a good proxy for our actual emotional state at the time we might have lots mm. of feelings and those feelings will be complex and changeable so maybe there's an element to which this kind of forced oversimplification and also amplification of the emotions is not super helpful to developing brains especially it's a very confusing time, teenager. <laughs> I don't want to go back there. <laughs> Kim, if people want to check out either the survey, if it's still available, or the series, where can they follow along with what we've been talking about? If they've got an iOS device that's updated, they can look at it through the SBS On Demand app. The funny story is, is that I didn't, I didn't actually see my own documentary on the day of the release because my app wasn't updated. So I was waiting for it to pop up, but it never popped up. Classic. You can always find out more by just looking at the SBS website, and I'm sure there's a post on there somewhere. I mean, if there are teachers out there, there's actually a school resource online which actually has clips of the actual documentary available online, which doesn't require any Apple device. So I've been using that particular link for my friends who are non-Apple users. We might see if we can find that and tweet that out. But cool. Dr. Lay, thanks very much for the chat and fascinating piece of research. We're glad you've done it and you might have saved a few people. Thank you so much. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
We are very excited to talk about something that is close to our heart. The Monash University Deep Neuron Lab is doing some amazing stuff in the field of AI and high-performance computing. They've done some awesome projects, which I'm not going to spoil for you right now, but we are joined on the phone by Scott Bennett, who's going to share some of their amazing work. Scott, thanks for jumping on the phone with us. Thanks for having me on. I'm Scott. I'm part of a Monash engineering student team called Deep Neuron, as you are saying. We have a bunch of different research projects through a range of different fields, mainly deep learning and high-performance computing. So we're working on different projects in areas such as generative modeling, natural language processing, image classification, and also more on the high-performance computing side where we're looking to optimize different software that we're using and trying to essentially just create faster and more efficient computing. Scott, it doesn't get any better than this. Just give yourself a moment to recognize that this is a sweet spot in your life because this is a lot of fun, I would imagine. Yeah, it is a lot of fun, but getting to work on such fantastic technology, which really Every day I wake up and I think about how I feel so motivated and passionate to dig into this technology, which I think will be able to revolutionize a lot of different things that we are currently doing in our life, whether it be our economy or the politics or our society. I really see a lot of potential in it. Scott, can I ask possibly a noob question for you? What exactly is high-performance computing and how does that compare to a lot of people hear about supercomputing? Are they the same term said differently or do they mean different things? They're essentially the same thing. So supercomputing, is or a supercomputer is essentially what we run our high-performance computing rooms on. So it's essentially a computer with lots of different mini-computers and essentially this this whole narrative of high-performance computing is how can we take a really computationally heavy task and split it up into little mini-tasks that we can send throughout a supercomputer and compute things efficiently and quickly. Does that answer your question? It absolutely does. I was just curious because I'm familiar with the POSI Supercomputer Center and I was thinking this is something in the same space. And I just wanted to check before I started asking questions about how much yeah. compute you have and what sorts of tasks it's specifically useful for. One of the main reasons why we do both deep learning and high performance computing is that a lot of the computation required for deep learning, so just for a little bit of background, deep learning requires is essentially using neural networks, and neural networks are these large arrays that require a lot of computation to slowly iterate and improve the model. So the main purpose of the high-performance computing side of the team is being able to work with the deep learning projects to enable them to be able to access and efficiently run their code to train their models and to create, to do our AI research. Yeah, amazing. In terms of the computers that you're working with, I'm assuming that they're networks of computers. Can you just yeah. explain for the layperson how different that is to say your MacBook Pro? What is the difference in terms of power or processing speed? When we're talking about computation, we're often talking about CPUs and GPUs. So the average MacBook or the average desktop computer might have between maybe two and eight CPUs and it might or might not have a small like GPU. When we're looking at a supercomputer, we have access to and we're looking at hundreds of, if not thousands of CPUs and have access to very, very very large GPUs, so these graphics processing units, which are able to paralyze, like I was talking before, our computational tasks. I'm curious to know in terms of size, because it used to be half a city block and people used to be running around in white coats, punching cards and stuff like that. Do you still get to go, this is my supercomputer and open a door and there's a grand reveal? I haven't actually had access to visit any of the really big supercomputers, but we're actually looking at hardware, which actually isn't that large anymore. Something which is capable of doing some really serious computation might be the size of a football instead of 
of, again, previously things that would take up the size of a bus. You don't um, really need to wear the goggles anymore. The theatre of it is gone. <laughs> yeah. Engineers yeah, still definitely. have a low dust, low static environment for them, though. They're going to be expensive boxes. Um, I'm winding you both up. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just checking out all of these amazing deep learning projects, but have you worked on any of them yourself, or is there one that's your favourite that you want to talk to? Currently, I'm just on management because I see a lot of value in trying to expand the team and see it reach its potential, getting the most students involved. But before I was involved with one of the technical deep learning projects, and that was the reinforcement learning project. So just a little bit of background on reinforcement learning. It's essentially looking at how can we teach an agent to make intelligent actions. So if I use the analogy of, let's say, a human, we would take the human as the agent, which would be, let's say, exploring our world. I might even use making breakfast as an example. So we're an agent, we're exploring, let's say, our kitchen, and we're trying to make our breakfast. And when you're young, obviously, you don't know how to make breakfast, and you might put your milk in before the cereal, or you might accidentally drop your bowl or something like that. And the reward of making your breakfast would be eating it and it tastes good. And to pair the analogy, we are trying to interact with our environment and get a reward signal. And depending on whether or not we get a reward signal or not, the actions leading up to that, we either go, yes, we want to continue doing the actions which improve the reward, or we want to not do the actions if we don't get a reward, let's say we might touch an oven. Burn our toast. Let's not do that again. Yeah, so it's essentially about in teaching an agent to act intelligently. So I was working on making a chess bot. So essentially we're taking an agent which plays chess we're teaching it the rules and then we just let it go and it'll either win or lose games and depending whether or not it wins a game or loses a game we're then able to back propagate and teach it what is a valuable move and what is not a valuable move so that's what i was involved with i think reinforcement learning in general has a lot of potential and there's a lot of really exciting work going on in this area in terms of i don't know whether you're familiar or alpha go yeah i was just actually about to ask you i think they used monte carlo modeling didn't they like i'm not sure all of the technologies that went into alpha go but it was i think monte carlo tree search algorithms was one of them the chess machine alpha go is playing go the classically chinese game with the white and black tiles yeah 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 Yeah. and it was a big deal when it consistently beat the world champion Mm. because it's a significantly the exponential number of yeah you can't brute force yeah something like 10 to the 200 different states in go i think and so it's something which you really can't brute force do you guys down at the club ever sit around and talk about things start to take off and you don't know what it's learning and what it's doing i mean that's one of the things about deep learning and machine learning is that you get them to a point where they're doing the basic task and then they start teaching themselves and what kind of conversations do you have ethically working at a large institution like monash what's your position on how comfortable should we feel about this this is a big thing i'm really glad you brought it up moving from the territory of machine learning to deep learning where you're working with neural networks there's also a certain level of uncertainty and volatility that comes with using neural networks they can just make decisions you don't know what's going in the neural network. It is a black box. I don't know whether you're familiar with, let's say, The Social Dilemma or maybe The Rabbit Hole podcast, but I think this form of media really explores how companies like Facebook have created these algorithms. They're using a neural network, a black box, to recommend different, let's say, videos or content for people and how things like this, it was built with the intention of having the user have the most fulfilling and rewarding experience, but it ends up with things like what we've seen unfold in America recently with there being this huge divide and these massive echo chambers where people are not able to see outside of their bubble and you see the storming of Capitol Hill. I'm taking a look at the projects you're working on and they all seem like there's, they don't necessarily have the impact of a Facebook type project where you're running a large uncontrolled social experiment on the world. So that's already a good starting point. I was going to ask a little bit of a a pointy question on the same vein, which is one of the topics people are bringing up more and more with deep learning and neural networks is the compute power as it computes to the carbon cost for the world. And I'm just wondering if you 
you all as a group have thought about that or have any constraints on whether you think a project is worth spending the dead dinosaurs on or if you have it's about coming up with a metric to help yourselves work out how much compute is appropriate to spend. It can be kind of difficult to try and measure these things. Often we're just running lots of different training examples and it can be hard to get a metric. We are considering it. Obviously, when we use our supercomputer, it costs money. So I think at the moment that is something that we like. obviously consider. We're running on quite a tight budget. So mm-hmm. I think it definitely comes around that. It's probably good. Having a budget cost helps you really prioritize how you want to use yeah. your compute anyway. I think the way going forward with this, I think it'd be really cool to see some policy orientated around trying to put a carbon tax or maybe a metric on how much this compute is using and what's its impact. Because I think it is a little bit difficult for a team like us to really examine what we're doing and how we can make a difference. We have to do the research and it can often be difficult to get around the computational barrier. But I think maybe it was incorporated in the system. So let's say the entity which controls the supercomputer is taking into account how much computer they're using, how much carbon they're corresponds to. I think that might be a really effective way to deal with it. If people want to check out what you're all working on, where can they find you folks and how can we get some more students in there, as you astutely pointed out earlier? We have a website called deepneuron.org. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, all under similar handles. We're also on LinkedIn and YouTube. We've got a couple of videos because a big part of what we do is trying to make AI and high-performance computing more accessible to the public and trying to spread strong values of ethics and principles, which unfortunately I probably didn't touch on a whole lot tonight. We have to bring you back in to talk about that. Scott Bennett from Deep Neuron at Monash University. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.